Obviously, we are going to continue in this interesting, fascinating study in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And by way of introduction, let me just remind you of a few of the things that we covered last week, just a little bit of the, hit the highlights of some of the, maybe the groundwork that we tried to lay. Uh, As we turn to chapter 11, just a reminder, this is basically an introduction or an opening of a new section. I don't want to be too dogmatic about that statement. Obviously, it's a letter, and so it all ties together. But but really what you see uh, kind of happening here as you step into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and in particular, uh, starting with verse 2, as we've already said, verse 1 really is uh, best associated with the preceding section. But as you get to verse 11, excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 11, uh, you begin to notice as you continue to read on that this is a larger section that continues all the way really through chapter 14, thank you brother, in which the Apostle Paul is dealing with matters pertaining to the gathered assembly in worship. Uh, you see this, of course, in this section that we're looking at right now in chapter 11, verses 2 to 16, where the Apostle Paul is clearly dealing with unique roles of men and women within the context of worship. You continue on in this chapter, and you get to verse 17, and you clearly see the Apostle Paul then bringing up significant concerns and matters pertaining to the partaking of the Lord's table, to the engagement in the communion table and really the abuses that were taking place uh, in Corinth at that time around the Lord's Supper during the context of worship. And then you look at verses 12 and really 12, 13, and 14 as a, as a, a collection of chapters dealing with the exercise of gifts in the life of the church and really more broadly uh, the, the nature or characteristics of Uh, orderly worship that brings glory to Christ and a clear testimony of the gospel to an unbelieving world. This is really what the Apostle Paul is focusing in on in this larger section. And as I said, it really is more broadly about glorifying God. And when you think about the context of the gathered corporate body in worship, is that not indeed the ultimate priority, the ultimate purpose, that we might bring glory to God in our worship and in our gathering. And as we come together in times of fellowship and singing and prayer and counsel and all the things that that take place when we gather, particularly when we gather corporately, and even particularly when we gather in a more formal sense of gathering for worship. It is about the glory of God. It is about us functioning living, acting in such ways that the way that we are acting, the things that we are saying, the disposition of our hearts and our minds even in that context, reflect truthfully and clearly and even vividly attributes of the God we worship. That we do not want to be characterized as we come individually into the corporate gathering and then come together as a collective and unified body of Christ, we don't in any way want to function in such a way that we are not accurately reflecting who God is in our worship. And so the focus in all of this is really about us reflecting the glory of God. We know that this is about the glory of God as he speaks of this. We'll talk about this even more explicitly in this section in chapter 11, this opening section in chapter 11, where he focuses a lot on bringing disgrace 
to God versus bringing honor to God, even in the context of discussing things like head coverings. But we see this more broadly as well, that that these attributes of God are to be characteristic of our corporate gathering, that these, these attributes of God should emanate from our corporate gathering and our corporate worship. It's to be characterized, for example, by peace rather than contentiousness. We see this in chapter 11, verse 16. It's to be characterized by sacrificial love rather than individual recognition. We see this really writ large in chapter 13, but in specific, chapter 13, verse 13, and then on into the first few verses of chapter 14, this this characterization of sacrificial love rather than individual acclaim, individual recognition. Our corporate worship and our corporate times together are to be characterized by clarity and order rather than confusion. And we see this as you move on into chapter 14. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Chapter 14, verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. And the reason for that is not some kind of, you know, school teacher kind of attitude that the Apostle Paul is trying to lay down onto his pupils, It's that God is a God of order, that as we function in our times of corporate worship and we conduct ourselves in such a way that it can be characterized by doing things decently and in order, we are reflecting a part of the very nature and character of God himself. And we'll see that more broadly even as we look at those verses in their context and we look more broadly in particular at chapters 12 through 14. But nevertheless, we come to this important section in chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Let me just read our passage together, and then we'll start to dive in a little bit more. He says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays, or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should just cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For a man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, clearly... Paul is raising a concern here in this section, as we said before, that deals with the roles of men and women within the context of the gathered church for worship. And we said last week, we sort of introduced what is the overarching principle that we find here in the the very beginning, 
he, he presents to us a very crucial principle that he wants the Corinthians, and by extension, he wants us to understand. He says that in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And we talked about last week very briefly that this introduces what at least appears to be a very comprehensive and even a very specific sort of hierarchy within the context of worship that is associated with manhood and womanhood in some way. We also noted last week that just this very subject, if we're honest, for most of us, to one degree or another, presents to us a bit of an offense to our sort of contemporary modern sensibilities. Yet, as we also noted last week, the contemporary conceptions of male and female identity and roles and functions and responsibilities in society have not at all led to broad-based human flourishing. Quite the opposite. So in all the ways that maybe we have just by osmosis, by the air that we breathe, we, we bristle a little bit when we start to read these kinds of verses together, we at least need to step back and look at the results of contemporary modern notions of male and female roles and responsibilities within society writ large. And we certainly could call to mind and produce case study after case study of churches who have taken on what are principally cultural ideologies pertaining to men and women and husbands and wives and home and family and so forth and so on, we could, we could look at those case studies and we could begin to see either historically as you look back at that church's history or just a survey of the, the true character and nature of their doctrine and their corresponding ministry emphasis, philosophy of ministry, if you will, what you will see very likely is a church that looks much more like the world around them than it does like a distinctive gathering of God's people who are called to represent Christ and reflect the very character of God as he has redeemed us and called us to be holy as he is holy. So at minimum, if we are a bit taken aback by some of the language here, if some of the the concepts that are presented sort of rub up against us in a certain way, we at least need to recognize that what we have now certainly is not good. That, That maybe, maybe we need to reconsider what is the source of some of our discomfort with these things. I can certainly tell you that if I got into a certain setting with certain groups of people, I might be reticent to speak boldly on these matters simply because I might be wrestling with the fear of man. Bottom line. I kind of prefer to be generally liked as opposed to generally despised. Call me crazy. So you get into certain situations and that that desire to not unnecessarily provoke people to 
vitriol and hatred directed squarely at you might compel me to hold back a little bit, to not speak plainly and clearly on these matters, if the situation made that appropriate or even necessary. So it's an offense to our modern sensibilities, probably, to some degree or another, maybe not terribly, but at least to some degree. But we also need to recognize, and I'm sure you recognize this, that this is an inherently contentious issue, not because of contemporary models of male and female identity and roles and responsibilities and matters of equality and all that kind of thing, but because there is Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, that the the matters that we contend with go back to that origin. And we looked at that last week, and we noted that that the, even the very contention that we experience as a society, as individuals, as men and as women, it is ultimately rooted in uh, aspects of the curse and the fall. That, that men and women, men are oriented toward rule, overruling, and women are intended in the same way just through different means, often. So, we need to recognize that we are dealing with a difficult set of passages, set of verses here. We are contending with a contentious issue. It's not just contemporarily contentious, but it is innately contentious for us. And, as we think about this Crucial principle that the Apostle Paul says explicitly, I want you to understand, it is a principle that is easy to misunderstand. Therein lies part of the difficulty as well. That the the, the principle that he is instructing us in here is easy to misunderstand. That's why it's often misunderstood. Now you might be hearing me say that, and your instinctive response is, yeah, no kidding, you just read it. I heard what it said. There's a lot here that I don't understand, right? I mean, it's like, what is he talking about? And indeed, as I said last week, this section of Scripture is legitimately difficult. There's widespread and common agreement, even from the standpoint of some of the cultural realities going on, that we don't have a lot of broad insight around to some of the ways that the the passage itself is structured, the use of certain terms that can be confusing if they're not properly understood. For a number of reasons, it is a legitimately difficult passage. And in fact, when you read it, I don't know about you, but for me, it raises all kinds of questions. And many of them we're going to have to really seriously consider if we're going to really try to understand this principle and understand the broad sweep of this text. And most importantly, understand it so that we can then faithfully obey it or submit to it or apply it to our lives. There are many questions that rise up out of this. Even in verse 2, he mentions this reference to traditions. He commends the Corinthians for keeping the traditions But 
Aren't traditions usually a bad thing in Scripture? I mean, was it not all the traditions of the Pharisees that Jesus and the Gospels out and out rebuked, confronted over and over again? And here's the Apostle Paul commending the Corinthians for keeping the traditions. And what about this term head? He's using it repeatedly in this passage. Is it primarily metaphorical? Is it anatomical? Is it some combination of both? How do you tell the difference? And what about this matter of, broadly speaking, headship? Particularly with reference to men and women. Does this apply only to husbands and wives? Or is this passage referring to some concept of universal headship of men over women, broadly speaking? And then there's this whole issue of head coverings. Should women always wear hats in church and men are never to wear hats in church? To put it in a common vernacular of hats? And what about hair length? Is it dishonoring to God for women to have short hair and men to have long hair? And if that's the case, how are we to know what constitutes short hair and long hair? I can tell you that I'm getting to the place, I'm pretty close right now, where my hair is starting to feel ungodly long. (laughs) Some of you are looking at me and going, what is he talking about? But I'm just telling you, personally... And what about verse 7? I mean, come on. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Is Paul actually saying that women are not created in the image of God? Only men are? Now, I understand verse 8, and I think you probably do too. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. You can see that sort of in Genesis, in the Genesis narrative. But verse 9... Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And what are the angels doing in verse 10 anyway? (laughs) And I didn't even mention this reference in verse 5 to women praying and prophesying in church. Does this contradict what Paul says just a couple of chapters later in verse 14? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 14. Same letter, verse 34 to 35. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. Verse 35, is there, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I saw a lot of you ladies earlier, and I'm sorry, but a lot of chattering going on out there. I mean, he he even speaks of this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he's instructing Timothy in his shepherding responsibilities of the church at Ephesus. Listen to verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. But here you have the Apostle Paul in chapter 11 saying something about women, and if they're prophesying or praying, they should have their head covered or some such nonsense. How do we reconcile all of that? Now, it's at this point that I need to call upon you to remember that the Apostle Paul taught us in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace 
and patience. I'm going to need you to be very patient. Because I'm not going to answer all these questions right now. I'm going to try to get at some of these questions as we go forward. But I know that these questions might, some of them might percolate to the top of your priority list. And we are going to work through these. But be patient because I really think it's important for us to be very careful and judicious in dealing with this particular passage, as we should with every particular passage, but given its prickly nature and some of the difficulties that are inherent in it, I want to make sure we're just very careful, very practical in trying to walk through this. And so it's going to require kind of coming at these various questions that sort of rise up out of the text from a few different angles to try to really unpack it and understand it and even, even you know, make somewhat of a case for, for how to possibly think about some sections of it when you can't be dogmatic about it. Like, you know, can, can we at least get some idea of how to think through it and maybe land somewhere that seems appropriate, seems uh, true to the text, seems practicable for us? I mean, we'll, we'll do some of that work as well, because there are certain sections or certain uh, parts of this passage that, you, quite honestly, you just can't land dogmatically on a particular conclusion about it because there are things going on here that we don't have information about contextually, historically, what was going on. But we're still going to try to do some work to address some of this. Now, I said that this is definitely a principle, this principle that he's pointing out about man and woman and Christ and God and head and head and head and head. This principle is challenging and difficult. It's easy to misunderstand, even though we're called to understand it. And you even get a hint of this in verse 3 with the very first word in verse 3 because it begins with this little conjunction, but, this contrastive conjunction. So you notice in verse 2, He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Then verse 3, but, but. So even though I can commend you for some kind of holding to some things that you were taught, there seems to be an indication here that you're not understanding fully what you need to understand in in the broadest application of these principles. Even the text itself yields up the fact that it's not easy to understand, even though we must understand it. Now Paul here, in verse 2, commends them for what you might literally say, holding fast to what he had handed down to them. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. That's it, the, 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 the language here, the terms here, speak of holding fast to that which is passed along by teaching. The term there for traditions is just that which is passed along by teaching is a definition of that. And, and they were holding fast to it. This idea of you remembering me is not sort of like a faint memory kind of idea. It's you are calling to mind in an ongoing kind of way, holding fast to, reminding yourself of the things, the teachings that were passed along to you. And as I said before, often in Scripture, this concept of traditions 
on its own, if you will, or in sort of a, a particular context, certainly has negative connotations, particularly when it's referring to man-made ideas or practices or rituals that are basically held up as divinely ordained or divinely prescribed. That's when this term has its negative connotation. When man-made ideas, man-made rituals, man-made principles are suddenly held up and held forth as divinely ordained prescripts rather than just man-made ideas, man-made thoughts, man-made principles. You see this in Matthew chapter 15, for example, where Jesus just excoriates the Pharisees around this issue. Chapter 15, starting in verse 1, he says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother... What, would you, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's when tradition is a massive problem, to say the least when man-made ideas are held up. And in this particular case, it's significantly egregious because what the Pharisees were doing is they were basically not caring for their you know, possibly aging parents who needed their assistance. They weren't caring for them financially, but rather saying that they were using their resources to give to God. I mean, that was their way of excusing themselves from this commandment to honor their father and mother. And, and to not revile their father and mother, lest you surely die. This, the reason why I'm focusing on this, we'll, we'll get to this more, more significantly, but it is important that we understand the distinction between tradition or custom that is to be confined to a particular era, a particular time and place, or just to a particular cultural setting or environment. In a few weeks, uh, Alicia and I and Joel and Kelly Teague will be boarding a plane to go to Nairobi, Kenya. And right now, my wife is trying to figure out what, what do they wear there? What is sort of customary? When, what, what, what do they wear in the church? She's trying to kind of understand how she needs to pack, not so much because she wants to you know, look a certain way or be in vogue, but she wants to, you know, understand what is customary, what is appropriate for that setting. What would be problematic is if somehow something like that got elevated to the place of prescriptive divine ordinance that unless you yield to it, you are in sin. Raising tradition to the point of orthodoxy and then condemning those who don't follow it and basically placing burdens on men 
with all of these needless man-made traditions. John Calvin, as you might imagine, went after this, particularly the, the papists. You know, John Calvin wasn't too friendly with the papists of his time, this Reformation theologian. He says this, it is necessary, speaking of this particular passage here in this particular, this particular verse dealing with the traditions, he said, it is necessary to speak of this word, this translated traditions, for the purpose of replying to the papist or the papists, who arm themselves with this passage for the purpose of defending their traditions. It is a common maxim among them that the doctrine of the apostles consists partly of writings and partly of traditions. Under this second department, they include not merely certain foolish superstitions and puerile ceremonies with which they are stuffed, but also all kinds of gross abomination directly contrary to the plain word of God and their tyrannical laws which are mere torments to men's consciences. In this way, there is nothing that is so foolish, nothing so absurd, in fine, nothing so monstrous as not to have shelter under this pretext and to be painted over with this varnish. As Paul, therefore, makes mention here of traditions, they seize, as they are accustomed to do, upon this little word with the view of making Paul the author of all those abominations which we, which, which we set aside by plain declaration of the Scripture. Now here is where the rub is going to come into play. There are those who would argue, even seek to argue from Scripture, that a view that our church doctrinally would take in our understanding of this particular passage, what is sometimes even referred to as the traditional view, they would, in not so aggressive kinds of ways, but nonetheless, certainly so, ascribe that view to this kind of traditional understanding. That somehow, a view of male headship that is characterized as more traditional, when they use that term traditional, they are ascribing this kind of tone to it. That that it is more of a shackling kind of tradition, tradition, rather than a thoroughly biblical, gospel-centered, you might say, understanding of the passages in view. There are negative, obviously, references in Scripture. The Apostle Paul himself speaks negatively of traditions, not just in the Gospels, but, for example, in Galatians 1, he says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Of course, that's not a good thing. Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Of course, human tradition, the traditions of man, the traditions of my father, speaking back to these very same people that Jesus was excoriating in Matthew chapter 15, yeah, that's not good. But what the Apostle Paul is referring to here are the apostolic doctrines and truths flowing out of the very teaching and gospel of Christ that were passed on to the churches. 
You see references to this same kind of tradition reference. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, there is sort of a rebuke for not holding to these traditions. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So going back to verse 3, after this commendation in verse 2 of holding to these traditions... He confirms that their adherence to much of what he had previously taught them still needed some refinement, particularly in this area of divine distinctions between men and women, and how that is to work itself out in the context of worship. But he definitely commends them for holding to the traditions, the teachings that were passed on to them. Tradition in and of itself even as it is reflected in Scripture, cannot be confined necessarily to the trash heap of things that need to be set aside in light of God's progressive revelation of the gospel and the new covenant and the freedom that we have now in Christ. So, yes, definitely. This is a principle that is not easy to understand. And there is potential confusion at the jump. There are some who would, in fact, argue that the very use of this idea or this term of tradition, that's what necessarily confines the teaching in its entirety to a purely first century context. And so, in order for us to understand this particular section of Scripture in a 21st century context... It has very different implications than some type of literal reading of the text. And, we, and, and the whole thing has to be kind of understood as part of custom and tradition in the first century, and in particular in first century Corinth. Now, I want to point out or give a little more color, if you will, to the contentiousness around this, this discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to just give you some kind of working definition, if you will, some ideas here around the, the two primary positions that are held. The egalitarian position as it relates to male and female roles and responsibilities in home and family and church, community and whatnot. And then the complementarian position. You've probably heard of these, I'm guessing, to one degree or another. The egalitarian position, or sometimes referred to as egalitarianism, within Christianity, uh, according to this particular writer, is a movement based on the theological view that not only are all people equal before God in their personhood, but there are no gender-based limitations of what functions or roles each can fulfill in the home, the church, and the society. It is sometimes referred to as biblical equality. Egalitarians understand the Bible as teaching the fundamental equality of women and men of all racial and ethnic groups, all economic classes, and all age groups 
based on the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. It should not be confused with secular political, economic, or social egalitarianism. The complementarian position, which is the position of our church, just to be clear, is the theological view that although men and women are created equal in their being and personhood, they are created to complement each other via different roles and responsibilities as manifested in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. It is rooted in more literal interpretations of the creation account and the roles of men and women presented in Scripture. It is also known as the traditionalist or hierarchical view. Now, I'm putting that in front of you because we're going to be unpacking these views, not necessarily as an academic exercise, but just wanting you to have the, the, that terminology as I reference them going forward. If I talk about a complementary perspective or an egalitarian view or whatever, if I just use those terms, I want you to know, in case you haven't come across them before or no one's mentioned them to you before, I want you to understand what it is I'm referring to. And I think that when you look at the words themselves, they kind of, you know, they're sort of self-explanatory in a certain sense. I mean, egalitarian versus complementarian. I mean, I think you'll obviously have the gist of it going forward for sure. But it's important that we understand that, that there are two different views that are predominant in evangelical churches. But what I want to make sure that we understand as we walk through this, which often becomes sort of the, I think, the point of, the critical point of failure when dealing with these kinds of issues, when debates and discussions emerge around these kinds of issues, is that the, the system, the ideology, if you will, becomes the argumentation point. So you'll notice here that this particular writer employed two unique terms, egalitarianism and complementarianism. So what can often happen, particularly when you approach passages of Scripture like this, whether you find yourself more ascribing to an egalitarian position or to a complementarian position, is that your particular ism becomes the overlaying lens through which you begin to interpret all the relevant passages that might speak to these matters. In other words, and and by the way, this can happen with any ism, any, any sort of theological system, if you will, Regardless of how thoroughly and carefully biblical it it is and its points, when we become systematicians, before we become faithful readers and interpreters of Scripture, we can go in a lot of aberrant directions. Or worse, we can be arguing with people in contentious ways because we are more about defending an ideology than we are about extrapolating from the very text of Scripture what God intends for us to know. Now, what I know to be true, and I will have some resources for us as we go forward to discuss this, but when you come to this kind of passage where you have something like in verse 3, that the head of every man is Christ, 
The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And you note that this is establishing something much bigger and much more comprehensive than a first century head covering matter. Then how are we to understand this? And I can tell you that what happens routinely, I read one writer who said this very explicitly, that Galatians 3, primarily uh, verse 28, but I'm going to read the broader context as well. Galatians 3.28 is the lens through which these passages are interpreted. And the, the rationalization or the justification is, is that we are to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. That is a sound uh, biblical interpretation, interpretive principle. And there is the principle of, of using what is most clear to shed light on what is a little less clear, but related. So those are, these are sound principles. But what they would do is they would go to, for example, Galatians chapter 3. And if you pick up in verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. This is sort of the summary theological rubric through which these passages are often interpreted by those who would hold to an egalitarian position. The position of what others call biblical equality. Where there are no distinctions in role and responsibility and function between men and women. They would use this particular verse, we are all one in Christ Jesus. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and no female. They would use a preeminently gospel, new covenant, rich passage of scripture that is set in a rich book or letter about the preeminence of the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone that no one is saved by the law, they would, they would lay that sort of that theological framework over these passages and use that as their interpretive lens to understand how we are to understand this, or to, to, to determine how we are to under, understand this kind of passage. And so, when you see that there is no male and no female, what that basically does is it flattens out every reference that you find in the New Testament to men and women as it relates to some kind of distinctive role or responsibility. All of this is driven by what I would consider to be vastly erroneous notions of equality. 
I don't know about you guys, but I do not see the world through a lens of equality. Do you? Do we somehow believe that God and his word yields up a preeminent presupposition of thoroughgoing, practical equality for all men and all women in this life? That certainly didn't work out too well for our Savior. I can assure you of that. Nevertheless, there is this desire to apply the liberating elements of gospel freedom from the constraints and bondage of the law to the freedom we have to no longer be bound to these kinds of ancient, patriarchal, traditional customs and roles and responsibilities of men and women. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that when you come to this particular passage, thankfully, we don't just have to contend with what the Apostle Paul speaks of in chapter 11, verse 3, in this repeated use of the term head that we're going to unpack next time. But we, we have these other references as you move through the passage that, that certainly broaden or force us to broaden our exploration of this and seek to understand what is the eternal transcendent principles that apply to us in this. So, for example, you have verse 8. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, taking us all the way back to the created order. And then you have this balancing reference point. Verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, another reference to creation, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So we have in this particular passage, in the midst of some of the unclear sections dealing with specific first century and even first century Corinth matters, we have these reference points to broad, transcendent, created order principles that we're going to have to contend with if we're to understand this properly. You notice in the definitions that I read, the complementarian position agrees wholeheartedly with the egalitarian position. In the equality in being and personhood in Christ that Paul speaks of so brilliantly and clearly in Galatians that we just read. But what we also need to make note of as we think about this moving forward, is that as we enter into these more specific understandings and discussions, and we look more broadly at other uh, relative passages of Scripture about these matters, and we seek to try to understand how this works itself out, that all of this is set against the backdrop, as I said at the outset, of the glory of God. The fatal error that we always make And that certainly people who get contentious around this issue necessarily make 
is seeing these matters as something that is primarily related to them. What they are entitled to, what they have rights to, what they deserve, who they are. And over and over and over again, what you will see is Scripture pointing us to the glory of God. As unto the Lord. Even when you look at the Galatian, excuse me, the Ephesians 5 passage dealing with husbands and wives, it is as unto the Lord. It is to be a beautiful picture of Christ and His relationship with His church. In every respect, it is about the glory of God. Not the rights of men and women. Not the entitlement. Another note that I referenced last week that we need to keep mind of is that the failures in these areas fall squarely upon men and women, profoundly so. And I would even say, maybe because I'm a man and I, I, I feel the personal weight of this, my conscience is, is troubled by this, I believe that what we are contending with more than anything else, regardless of how these matters are articulated and bantered about and debated and screamed at one another over, I believe that the largest prominent issue in view here centers on the failure of men more than anything having to do with women. I'm going to try to unpack that hot take as we go forward. I alluded to it last week. When you look at the created order and the the garden scene, what you notice, especially in Genesis chapter 2, is that the command that was broken as Eve was tempted by the serpent and partook of the fruit was a command that was given to Adam before Eve was even made. And when you note the way the narrative plays out in Genesis chapter 3, what you see is Adam standing idly by. Because Eve took of the fruit, and then she just almost casually in the narrative turned and gave it to Adam, and he ate. And one final note that we'll unpack as we move forward. There are certainly profound and profoundly important distinctions between the practical day-to-day outworkings of these divinely ordained distinctives between men and women, husbands and wives, that are often miscalculated and misappropriated. Let me just say, by virtue of a very personal example, I find myself all the time submitting to my wife. All the time. I find myself submitting to my kids. In practical terms, I'm just telling you, I don't operate in my family, generally speaking, my son's in here, so please don't go talk to him about this afterwards. But I don't think I operate, generally speaking, in my family, walking around insisting on getting my way with everything, because haven't you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11? What's wrong with you? So we need to understand that in in the practical ebb and flow of life, there is always mutual submission 
deference, preferring others, considering others as more important than yourself. So we can't allow ourselves to sort of fall into the trap of saying, okay, so what does this mean when it comes to deciding where we go for lunch this afternoon? I'm using that as obviously a silly kind of hyperbolic example, but you understand the point. Mutual submission, sacrificial love, deference, preferring others, all these things are to be characteristic of every believer. And those things work themselves out practically all the time in the context of the church, in the context of the home, in the context of the community. So there's no shortage of mistaken notions of how this practically works itself out. In our membership commitments, one of the commitments is, uh, will you agree to submit to the loving rule and leadership of the elders? And I just have a question. I don't want you to answer it out loud, but think about it. In your interactions with the elders, have you ever been in a situation where they were sort of deferring to you? Submitting to you? Considering you? Not lording over you in any kind of way at all? This is the point. I'm kind of raising these very practical examples for us to realize that as we walk through here, we are going to need to elevate our thinking and our perspective to the plane that the Apostle Paul is trying to elevate the Corinthians' thinking and perspective on these matters. It does have practical implications. It does work itself out specifically in specific context. But ultimately, it is about the glory of God. And ultimately, it is about us submitting ourselves thoroughly and joyfully to our head. So we're going to walk carefully through this, and we are going to try to answer this range of questions that we opened up. And I will generally say uh, just one point of, um, and part of the reason why I'm stalling on some of this is because I, I, haven't, I haven't figured out the answer to some of these questions yet. So I got to figure out what I believe about it before I tell you what I think you need to believe about it. But, but I think that uh, from a, just from a textual perspective, um, there, it, the one thing that's been, that I've been kind of wrestling with a little bit and trying to think through, and I'm going to continue to do so, but uh, how many of you have... Um, a translation that says, that does not translate wife and husband, but just man and woman. Yeah, so the ESV, I'm reading from the ESV, and it makes a translation decision there, uh, particularly in verse 3, that every, uh, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband. Those are the same Greek terms that could be translated man and woman. And that's the case all throughout Scripture. That's the Greek term that context sort of drives how those get translated. And the context generally uh, is, is sort of a, a clear indication that you're really speaking about husbands and wives versus just men and women generally. The unique challenge, a couple of unique challenges with this particular passage is that you'll find commentators that sort of land on both sides of this and will ultimately step back and say, but we can't be dogmatic about it. Um, But you also find in the context that on one hand, it seems like it certainly could be and maybe even should be thought of as a husband and wife kind of situation. And then you go further and it's like, but that seems more broad. What do we do about that? How do we understand that? Do all these Yahoo dudes walking around here somehow have overlording authority over all these ladies in the church, no matter who they are? I can tell you this, if one of these dudes came up and started talking to my wife like he was her head... 
I'm, I might have to become an egalitarian at that point. <laughs> so, all that to say, we've got a lot of work to do. I hope you'll kind of gear up, be patient as we walk through this, and uh, hopefully the Lord will kind of use our study to enrich us in the truth. Let's pray.